want you to take a look at the, uh, the subject that we're going to be discussing this morning as we begin our new year. We're going to take a little break from the Sermon on the Mount. We'll come back to it next week. But because this is a special day, a year ago today, we came together as one body, as one church, under one Lord, and we made a commitment to move forward, to leave the past behind, and to memorialize that day by putting that large boulder out front and by each of us putting individual rocks at the foot of that to remind us of that day. And I hope that each and every time you drive by the front of that church, as you see that rock, that almost five-ton boulder that we found in Kansas, it's a Kansas boulder, okay, and we put it in front of the church, that you are reminded of the day, October 6, 2013, about how we as a church, under one Lord, one body, one church, move forward as one community into the promise of God's providential care for us as a church. God has amazing things for us as a church. I still, to this day, from the very first day I stood in this place over seven years ago, I still envision, I can still see every seat in this auditorium filled to the glory of God. Notice I said filled to the glory of God. Not for our edification or for our proclamation or for our ego, but for God's glory. Each and every seat in this place one day will be filled. For I am convinced that this building right here is not an accident. It was done by God's providential leadership. That there may be some who built it for the wrong reasons. There may have been lots of things that took place in getting us to where we are. We, we've never filled this auditorium, really even from the first day we were in this place. But one day, I believe, it will be filled. It's not an accident. When I looked on the map, when I first heard uh, of a man named Andy Anderson, where we looked on the map for the first time after I heard from, from, from the committee, I didn't know really. I knew where Wichita was, but I never really looked on a map. And we opened this large atlas, and it was in the center of the U.S., at the very heart of the heartland. And I thought this would be a great place for God to move in such a mighty way that we could see a revival sweep, not only across Wichita and Kansas, but God could use this church as a catalyst to reach the world with the gospel of Christ. We're at the heart, at the center of the heartland. Why not us and why not Emmanuel? There's a lot of things that God wants to do in us and through us. The question is, how do we get there? You can't get there by sitting still. You can't get there by being stagnant. We can't get there by being complacent. We can't get there by being protective to try to protect what we have and to preserve the gains that we have in order to, to, to just hold on to that rather than moving forward and reaching out and risking it all for what God has for us. It would have been easy for the children of Israel to sit on the other side of the river where they were and not move across the Jordan into the promises and the providential blessings of God. There would be great battles. There would be great strategies that would have to be developed. There would be losses. There would be gains. There would be, yes, even victories because there are enemies that would have to be overcome. And yet they, by faith, marched as one over the Jordan or through the Jordan and into the promises of the providential provisions of God in that which he had promised, the promised land for them. And I'm convinced that God has a purpose and a, a future for us that I can't help but believe that it's more than just what we have today. 
And if we as one body, one church, under one leadership, one Lord, will move as one unit beyond to where we are and willing to move forward, not being stagnant or stale or sit, sit in our, our, our complacency, but move forward, risking even everything we have individually and corporately to move into what God wants for us and has for us, what he's providentially provided for us already if we would just move by faith forward. If you're a faith person, a faith individual, or a faith church, we must move forward. Faith is something that moves with God. God is not a still, nor is he a stagnant God. There's always a future, there's always a forward, because there's no standing still in the Christian life. I'm convinced you're either moving backward or you're moving forward. You can't sit still very long. There's a tide that we, that we live with every day. It's called the world, and it either moves us backward or we, in faith, move forward against the tide into the providence of God and what he has for us. And so we as a church must move forward in faith. I'm convinced that there are some who might have a problem with that, as there were in Jesus' day. For when Jesus came on the scene, there were some people that wanted to protect and preserve the gains that they had. They had taken great lengths to set up this beautiful little setup in which they were the authorities and they were in charge and they were in control. And, and they didn't want anyone to disrupt that because they were afraid in those, in, in those efforts they would lose the momentum and they would lose the control or authority that they had. But Jesus, when he burst in the scene, he disrupted and destroyed all of that and set to move forward in faith those who would go with him. And as I thought about this morning, I couldn't help but continue to go back to the passage that we've studied together twice already in the seven years I've been here, and that's John chapter 5. Because it's here that we learn that we must move forward in faith with God. That's what Jesus was challenging them to do. As you look at the text in John chapter 5, you see in this passage, beginning with verse 15, John sets up, verses 1 through 14, this beautiful picture of what Jesus instructs to his disciples as to what needs to happen if we're to move forward. In John chapter 15, verse 1, we see that Jesus is moving toward Jerusalem, and he's going to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. He makes his way through the sheep gate, and as he does, he notices that there's a pool that's there, and around that pool are many, many, many really sick people. And the reason they have gathered around this pool is because they believe that there's an angel going to come, and upon that angel arriving, he's going to stir the waters. And upon stirring the waters, the first one who gets to the waters is going to receive a miraculous healing from Jehovah, from God. And as he walks up to that pool, as he goes through the gates, he notices a man who the Bible says had been there 38 years. Now imagine being in one place, paralyzed for 38 years. I don't know if you've ever been to Jerusalem, but I went to Jerusalem when it was the cheapest to go, and it was close to winter. It can get cold in Jerusalem. Now granted, not as cold as Wichita, but it can get pretty cold there. And it can also get pretty warm there. Now, here's a man who has lived 38 years nestled, nestled in this little corner pocket next to the pool, awaiting for an angel to stir the waters. His family has provided everything for his comfort and his survival. He probably has a little cappuccino machine there, and he's got, uh, you know, a little microwave oven. I don't know, but he's got stuff there in order to allow him to sustain his livelihood while he's waiting for an angel to come to stir the waters. He's been there 38 years eight 
years. That's a long time. And when Jesus comes up and sees him, he said, hey, man, would you like to be healed? What kind of question is that? Would you like to be healed? I think this is an important question because there are some people who don't want to move forward with God. We're comfortable with settling and remaining where we are in our complacency and our stagnation because, you know what, we love our dysfunctions, don't we? And if we address our dysfunctions and therefore I have to put forth some effort to change or to alter or to be transformed somehow, and I'm just not willing to risk it all to make that happen. But Jesus asked him, would you like to be healed? He looks up to him and said, man, what do you mean, would I like to be healed? Well, yeah, I've been here 38 years. I've been waiting for the angel to stir the water. But every time I try to get to the pool, somebody beats me to it. Yes, I want to be healed. And Jesus turns to the man and simply says, rise, pick up your bed, and walk. And he does exactly what Jesus tells him to do. He rises up from his condition. A miraculous transformation takes place, and the man is healed. And he picks up his bed, and he's bebopping home, man. He's excited. I, you know, he left all that stuff there for somebody else to have. He's going home. What he forgot was that it was the Sabbath. And according to man's traditions and regulations, you can only take so many steps on the Sabbath and only do so many things. But he's bebopping home. He forgot it was the Sabbath. He's just been cured by this man. He has no idea who his name is or how he was able to perform this incredible miracle. But he, now he's healed and is on the way home. And somebody interrupts and said, hey, dude, you're walking on the Sabbath, but you're carrying your mat. That is not legal. You're breaking the law. He said, well, I don't, I don't know about this breaking the law thing. All I know is that, that there's this man who told me I was healed to stand up, pick up my man and walk, and I did. That's why I'm doing this. And they ask him, well, who cured you? I don't know, man. I don't know who it was. Just some man came by the pool and told me to, to rise and to pick up my bed and walk, and I did, and I've been healed, and I'm on my way home. Later that day, Jesus makes his way to the temple. The Bible says, John tells us to find the man who had been cured. And as he goes to the temple, he strategically finds the man. And he and the man have an encounter. In that encounter, he identifies himself as the man who told him to rise and to pick up his bed and walk. Well, the man does what we might think is unreasonable, but he, from that encounter with Christ, seeks out those religious elite who was questioning who was it that told him to rise and to walk and carry his mat on the Sabbath, and he informs them that his name was Jesus. And it's here that we pick up in our text, beginning with verse 15, and the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling his father, his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. Here Jesus is revealing to us today in this passage how we by faith can move forward with him. What are the principles? Let's take faith, F-A-I-T-H, 
And let's look at five very important things very, very quickly of how we can move forward in faith with him. Number one, we must forsake personal prejudices. If you look at verse 15 to verse 16, you quickly realize that these men were upset with Jesus. And the reason they were upset, it tells us not only in verse 16, but also in verse 18, there are three reasons why they were upset with Christ. They were upset with Christ, number one, because he was breaking the Sabbath. Number two, because he was calling God his father. And number three, he was calling himself equal with God. And that upset them. Because it defied their traditions, it defied their preconceptions, it defied their prejudice that had been formed by man's tradition. And Jesus was invading their human traditions and their human laws as we have seen in the last several Sundays throughout his message in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you have heard them say, but I say to you, and he's about to say almost the same words in this text. And he's destroying their prejudices and their preconceptions as to how God can work. These men were trying to protect and preserve what they had built up. And they were afraid if they were to allow Jesus to, 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 to do the things that he, he is doing, that he would destroy their authority. He would destroy all that they had set up. And there was no way in their, in, in their wildest imagination that God could ever work this way. I wonder what Noah thought when God came to him and said, here's how I want to work through you. I wonder what Daniel thought when God came to him and he said, I want to work through you. I wonder what he thinks when he says, I want to work through you. And we give him this, this, this excuse or this rationale or this this prejudice are these preconceptions in which we have already defined God. We have put him in this box. We have put him in these perimeters. We have defined how God can and cannot work. And based upon what we think God can do and what he can't do, we build this, this little parameter here and said, no, God, you can't do that in my life. And many times we limit what God wants to do in us and through us simply because we build what I want to call this box in which we want to put God in this little neat package in which we have defined and we have, we have, we have concluded and we have then proclaimed this is how God operates and anything outside of that is not the norm. And we quickly want to declare, no, that's not you, God. No, you can't do that because this is the way I imagined it. This is the way I have conceived it. This is the way I want it to be. I've spent all this time building up my life to be exactly this and going in this direction and I've, I've, I've got it in this neat little package and now you're invading my personal space and you're wanting me to do this and you're wanting me to do that. That's beyond the realm of possibilities. That's beyond the realm of my imagination. That's beyond the realm of my plans and my prejudices. And yet God says, I have no limits when it comes to your prejudice or your preconceptions. And I think many times God says, imagine with me what I could do through you. So we must forsake personal prejudice. Number two, the A stands for affirm. We must affirm now the activity of God. Once we forsake personal prejudices, there's this affirmation that takes to take place that, yes, God, you are presently working. You are always working. There's never a moment, there's never a time in which you have not been working. Jesus, when they came with their, 
were their protests as to how he was claiming to be who he was and doing what he was doing, how could they deny the reality of his claim? I mean, the man that was paralyzed for 38 years by the pool was standing there as a witness, as a testimony of the activity of God, and yet they were so blinded by their own prejudices that they could not see the activity of God. And they question, where is God in this? God can't operate. Well, there he was. He was standing there. The miracle himself of the activity of God. And Jesus answers them and he says, my father is working until now and I am working. It's interesting that he answers them and he says, my father. He tells them, hey, I have such a personal relationship with the father. This intimate love relationship is interesting that he's talking about my father in this personal relationship who is presently working. He is now working up until now. He's been working in the past. He's working in the present and he's going to continue to work in the future. He is always at work. God never rests. He never sleeps. He never takes a vacation. He's always at work. Always. Can you imagine that? I mean, you and I, when we work, we put in our day, and what do we want to do? We want to take off. We want to rest. Yes, we want to sleep. And there's nothing like, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, our beds, our pillows, laying there after a long, hard day, going, oh, and it's great. Some of you didn't want to get out of bed this morning. I said, some of you didn't want to get out of bed this morning, right? Why? Because we like to rest. But God never takes a rest. He is always at work. And while we may not always acknowledge him, see him, understand him, or like what he's doing, God is always at work. Not only is he working, but Jesus says, I too, like my father, am working. There's an old song that says, we'll work till Jesus comes. Anybody know that song? We'll work till Jesus comes, we'll work. Can we sing that next week, Mark? Till Jesus comes, just like that with that accent. We'll work. Because God never takes a rest. It really kind of concerns me when there are pastors who say, you know what, I can't wait for retirement. What is retirement for a pastor? Well, let me ask you something. What is retirement for a Christian? If God is always at work and he's always working around me and in me and through me, is there ever an opportunity for me to say, you know what, I've done my, my duty. I can't tell you how many people have retired from ministry at Emmanuel Baptist Church because they've already spent their due in such and such a place. Well, as long as you have breath, as long as you have been given life, because God is continually working, we must, like Jesus, work with God. And once we forsake our personal prejudices and affirm the reality that God is at work, we then need to identify our personal limitations. It's interesting that Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing, nothing of his own accord. What Jesus is simply saying here is that I have 
personal limitations. And I, even though I am the divine son of God, co-equal with the father, his son, in all my attributes, and all my characteristics, and in all of my everything, me and the father are one, yet I am subservient to him as the son, and I limit myself, he says, in power and in purpose. For Christ limits himself. It is his choice to limit his power, to then tap into the power that God has available to him. But also I see in this text, and I wish we had time to talk about it, but we don't. But the purpose of God, notice he says, I do nothing in my own accord. In other words, he's saying, I could do things without God, but I choose not to do things without him. For I make this journey in life, day by day, moment by moment, as I'm walking through life, I see where God is at work, and I choose to join him in what he is doing. I don't invite him to do what I want him to do. That is huge for us, isn't it? For how much of our praying is, God, I want you to do what I want you to do. And we seek to do what we want to do in our power rather than in his. And then we wonder why we fail. Oh, we wonder why we never see the miraculous transforming results that the Spirit wants to endow us as individuals and bless us as a church to receive. Isn't it time that we stop looking to our own resources and asking God to bless our strategies and our efforts and come to him and say, Lord, you show me what you want to do and I will follow your will, not mine. And should we not pray, Lord, what is your will? And only after he shows us what his will is, then we make the commitment to pray for his will to be done, not our will to be done. For even Jesus was in, when he was in the garden, and he knew what was coming up at the cross. He humbled himself and said, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Our Father, which art in heaven, he taught us to pray. Hallowed be thy name. What's the rest of it? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not our will, not my will, not your will, not the church's will, but your will to be done. And we come with these limitations, recognizing our total dependence upon him, not only for the power that is necessary to make the job happen and to accomplish the transformational things that God wants to do in us and through us, but we come to him saying, Lord, may your purposes fill our efforts and guide our work. For once we've forsaken personal prejudices and affirmed the activity of God, and we have identified our personal limitations, we must then trust his leadership. This is critical because it's hard for us to trust the Lord, isn't it? It's hard to trust the Lord, isn't it? May I ask you that again? Is it hard to trust the Lord? I think it is. I, I know it is. I mean, the people of Israel, they had a whole 40 years of learning how to trust the Lord. We've been studying on Wednesday nights in our Wednesday night Bible study, and we've only made it through the first 16 chapters where time and time again the people of God failed to trust God. They had been miraculously saved uh, from Egypt and liberated by the millions of them or making the journey toward the promised land. 
And time and time again, they failed to trust God. They find themselves having found themselves in a cul-de-sac back where they turned to. Well, first of all, when, when, when they were just barely out of Egypt, you know, all of a sudden here comes Pharaoh and their backs are up against the, the sea, so to speak, and they, they freak out and they fail to trust God. Well, God parts the water. They walk, on Christ, uh, walk across on dry land. Not, not too many days after that, they're journeying toward the promised land and they run into a place where there was nothing but bitter water and they gripe and complain and they fail to trust God. It wasn't long after that that they are making a couple of days journey and they're running low on food supply and they lack to trust God again until he provides for them in a miraculous way. It's not long after that they run into another water shortage and they lack trust in God again. And over and over again, God continues to test their faith and they fail to trust him to finally say, you know what? 40 years in the wilderness, I'm going to wipe out this whole generation until I can raise up a new generation that will trust me. And I've thought about that here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Does he have to raise up a whole new generation of people who will trust him before he sees in us the trust that is necessary for him to fill these chairs and move this church to where it wants to be? And yet he says trust, for he says, but only what he sees the Father doing. He only does what he sees the Father doing doing? What does Jesus do? Only what he sees God doing. How does he know what God is doing? He says in verse 20, for the father loves the son and shows him some of what he's doing. Is that what he says? Shows him what? All that he is doing. The father shows him all, everything that he is doing. Not just some of it, but all that he himself is doing. And notice it says, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Jesus restricts himself here. There's a restriction toward trust. He only does what he sees the Father doing and nothing more. He doesn't do more than the Father's doing. He joins God and he does only what God is doing. That's what trust does. That's why Paul tells us to keep in step with the Spirit because he knows our tendency is to either get ahead of God or lack behind God. But we must do everything that we can to keep in step with what the Spirit of God wants to do in and through us. And Jesus is saying he only does what he sees the Father doing, nothing less and nothing more. But notice the reason why he can trust God. He can trust him because of this beautiful relationship that's here. It's a love relationship. And this word love here is phileo. It's the deepest affection that someone can have of complete intimacy and relationship with the Father. Jesus has the deepest, most affectionate, the most passionate relationship that can he possibly have with the Father. You know, I think one of the reasons why many of us can't trust God is because we lack the personal relationship aspect. We either don't recognize how much he loves us, or we don't love him with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. Because we have a tendency to doubt God. We, we don't trust him because, you know, we don't know how much he loves us. Because how would a loving God, and how come a loving God would send us into a place that is harmful and hurtful for us if it weren't his permissive will? And God is going to lead you into the places that he wants to accomplish his purpose and to bring him glory. And we can trust him because even in the darkest, toughest moments in life, we know that though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil for thou art with me. 
because we know that he loves us. And he would never send us somewhere out of spite. But he loves us. And if I know how much he loves me, I don't have to be afraid and worried about trusting him. But you know, when I love him and trust him, I don't have to worry about where he's going to send me because I know he loves me and I love him and it doesn't matter. And that's why Jesus could go to the cross. But notice in this beautiful passage, he talks about the, re- the, uh, the revelation of the activity of God. God shows him all that he is doing. When you have this intimate love relationship with God and you're walking communion and community with him and you're having this day-to-day journey of, of I mean, you're, you're connecting with God, he's going to open your eyes and he's going to show you where you're at work. You know, when somebody says, you know, I don't see God at work, that usually is a sign to me that they're not walking with the Lord or that their relationship with him has somehow been broken because of sin or indifference or laziness because he says here that he will show him all that he himself is doing and there's a reassurance in this passage where Jesus says not only does he show me what he's presently doing but he's going to show me what he's going to do in the future and God's going to do through me greater things than these and in the next passage which we don't have time to read he's going to say he's even going to raise the dead he's going to give new life to the dead and you're going to marvel. You know, you should have marveled with this guy who was lame who now walks, and that didn't impress you at all. But God's going to do some incredible things that are going to be so great that you're not going to be able to deny the fact that God is at work. And my prayer is that God would do a work in you that's so great that you could not ignore it. Or a work that is so great in his church that the only way, the only way we can describe it is that God did it. No one should be able to take the credit for it. And then lastly, notice the H stands for harmony. We need to harmonize in this concept called shared activity. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. I, I don't know what, where you're at, but just write down or circle the word whatever. You know, whenever you have a, a teenager, you know, and you're telling them something they don't like, what they're hearing, they go, whatever. You guys ever said that? Huh? Whatever. But you usually say that when you don't want to do the whatever. But Jesus says, for whatever the Father does. To me, in this text, that is unlimited, unconditional acceptance of whatever the Father wants to do. Jesus has this yieldedness. He has this acceptance. Lord, whatever you want to do in me and through me, I am willing to accept it and to go with it. Whatever you want to do. I'm good with whatever. A lot of times we come to God with conditions, but he, he's saying through Jesus here, we need to come to him with this humility and this honesty in which we have a brokenness that says, God, whatever you want to do in my life and in your church, whatever, I'm willing, I am ready, I will accept it, and I'll go with you. And it might go against what you like. He may ask you to do something that you may not think is quite fair. He may ask you to sing a song that you might not know. 
He might ask you to serve in a ministry that you've never thought about. He might ask you to share your faith with someone that you've been rubbing elbows with every single day of your life, but you've never taken the step to share your personal testimony with them. Whatever. Whatever, Lord. I am willing, but notice in this not only unlimited, unconditional acceptance, but there's an unreserved and there is an uninhibited obedience. For he says, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. He is is obedient to whatever God is calling him to do. So as we close, two things I want us to consider today. Two questions. What do I need to do right now? What do I need to do right now to join God's activity and his will for our future as a church family? I mean, we're a church. Emmanuel Baptist Church. We've been here for over 100 years. Well, what would God have you individually and us corporately, what activity, what part of his will does he have for us as a future together? How do we as one church, one body, serving one Lord, how do we move together toward his plan, his purpose, and his will for our lives? We must corporately come together like God's children did when they together crossed over the Jordan into the promised land, into the future that God had for them. We too must come together as a church. Is everybody going to be happy at the direction we're going? No. But are we willing? Is God going to invade our preconceptions and our, our, our likes and dislikes and, and take us out of our comfort zone and, and bring some, some challenges and circumstances and situations and some enemies? and some Yes, because once they crossed over the Jordan and the promised land, there was still an enemy. There were still strongholds. There were still battles. There were still fights. There, there was still stuff. But because they moved together under the leadership of the Lord, they were victorious. And so should we. And so can we. The last thing that I want to ask us is this. What do I need to do right now? What do I need to do right now in my personal life to join God's activity and his will for my life and for my future? God's working right now in your individual life, whether you recognize that and realize that or not. He's not stopped. Sometimes we have a tendency to think, you know, I can't feel him, I can't see him, I don't understand him, I don't like what he's doing, or I don't know what he's doing. Well, that's a sign that you're not as connected as you should be because God actively working in your individual life right now as he is in his church and in this community. And maybe you need to reconnect with him on a personal level. Maybe your love for him isn't what it should be. Maybe you don't recognize how deep his love and affection is for you. Maybe there's something that God's invited you to do that you just think, you know what, that's outside of my comfort zone. God, don't you know I'm retired? God, I've I've spent a lot of time setting up this little life that I have here, and I'm protecting and I'm preserving that, and you want to do what? 
You want to do what? No, I'm not quite sure. I'm not sure. I, I just can't trust you, Lord. If we individually don't go forward in faith, we as a church will not move forward in faith. So what is it that God is inviting you to do right now? To join the activity that he has already purposed in your life today. Let's pray. Set.